Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 5, Lipanis at Last. I'm Brandon Seal. Whether apocryphal or not, the Norteño defeat of the Plains Apache in 1724 at the Battle of Gran Sierra del Fierro coincided with a major change in the geography of the Apache Empire. Plains Apaches would no longer control the Texas Panhandle. The headwaters of the Colorado and the Brazos would mark the line between Apache and Comanche worlds for most of the next century, during which time the Plains Apaches would double down on protecting their hill country homeland and the ranges in and around San Antonio. Because the truth is that the Plains Apache economic model was still sound. Indeed, the reason that the Norteños continued to so relentlessly attack the Plains Apaches for the next century was that the Apaches still filled a very profitable economic niche in Texas. Even if they couldn't broker an outright alliance with the Spanish in the same way that the Norteños had done with the French, Apaches still controlled the geography of Spanish trade. Even as Spanish administrators in San Antonio remained standoffish and hostile to the Apaches, San Antonians themselves, the Janos, developed increasingly close relationships with them. And here we see the subtlety of the Plains Apache absorption strategy at work. Apaches began to trickle into the San Antonio community. Quote, in the registers of baptism, marriage, and burial for San Antonio de Valero from 1721 through the 1780s, 129 Apaches can be counted, end quote. Spanish slaving expeditions, however, remained a major impediment to a closer relationship. When times got tough, Presidio commanders and even less scrupulous types would just head outside of San Antonio and enslave the first Indians they found, which increasingly were the same Apaches on whom they had come to depend for their economic commerce. A second favorite activity of Spanish settlers, rounding up wild horses, just as often consisted of rounding them up from neighboring Apaches' horse herds, something that Spaniards would have been quick to label horse theft if it had been the other way around. These hill country Apaches were pretty judicious in pushing back against the slaving and horse-stealing raids, but it doesn't mean that they were nonviolent. In the years leading up to 1731, 22% of all recorded Spanish deaths in San Antonio were attributed to the Apaches, though again, those numbers might be self-serving for Spanish officials looking for an excuse to launch quote-unquote retaliatory slaving raids. But in 1731, the Spanish-Apache conflict undeniably intensified. On September 18, 1731, an Apache party rounded up 60 horses that the Presidio commander claimed belonged to the Presidio company. The Spanish Presidio commander sent out six scouts in pursuit, who were soon met by six times as many Apaches on horseback. The Spanish scouts sent back for reinforcements, but as soon as the 30 additional Presidios showed up, 500 more Apaches did as well. The Apaches surrounded the small presidial force and began advancing on them in the shape of a crescent moon. And then, quote, the enemy, for no apparent reason, took off at top speed and disappeared, end quote. From the comfort of the present, these kinds of Apache tactics look like conspicuous displays of mercy, deliberate decisions not to annihilate the forces of a society that they were increasingly accepting as a part of their economy. And yet, once again, 
instead of interpreting Apache mercy as such, the traumatized Spanish survivors committed to retaliating against the people who had chosen not to massacre them. In October 1732, the San Antonio Presidio Company surprised an Apache town of some 400 houses spread out over several miles, home to maybe 700 people. The Spanish party, led personally by the Texas governor, slaughtered 200 men, women, and children, including an Apache captain with a silver-tipped cane. It was yet another betrayed promise of peace, capped off by the theft of 700 Apache horses and 100 mule loads of hides and plunder and the marching off of 30 Apache women and children into slavery. The wild disproportionality of this response to an Apache roundup of 60 horses the year prior suggests that this raid was less about vengeance and probably more about profit. The San Antonio Mission priests certainly thought so, and they complained about it to their superiors. The Apaches thought so as well, and they quickly mustered up as many warriors as they could and attacked the Spanish Presidial Party all the way back to San Antonio. Even the most experienced Presidial soldiers were re-traumatized by this campaign. Quote, they expressed amazement at what they saw, for they had been in many engagements with various Indian nations, but never in their lives had they seen anything to equal the valor and daring of these warriors. Unquote. Realizing his vulnerability after this raid, the Spanish governor decided against selling the 30 women and children captives into slavery. Instead, he decided to use them as leverage to demand peace talks with the Apaches, in much the same way that his predecessors had in the previous decade. The strategy met with similarly mixed results. The immediate Apache response was to kill and mutilate the first two Spanish soldiers that they caught outside the city. Longer term, the hardball negotiating tactics of this Presidio commander led to the ascendance of a fiery young Apache captain known as Cabellos Colorados, or the Redhead in English. Though we should be precise here, because referred to just as often in the historical record of Cabellos Colorados was his wife as well. Though she isn't called just his wife, she's called La Capitana, the captain. Cabellos Colorado and La Capitana seem to be promoting a policy of tit-for-tat which is to say, given the indecipherability of Spanish motives, they decided to simply mirror Spanish actions every step of the way. If the Spanish wanted trade, the Apaches would trade with them. And indeed, trade in buffalo hides and salt resumed even during these years of high tensions. Cabellos Colorados himself would actually sometimes come to town to do the trading. But every time the Spanish overstepped, the Apaches made sure that they were retaliated against. Two years later, in 1734, Cabellos Colorados would kill two more Spanish soldiers that had wandered too far from town, and by so doing continue to remind the Spanish of the limits of their power. And yet, Cabellos Colorados, La Capitana, and the Plains Apaches generally wouldn't compromise on one thing. The horse herd of Texas was theirs. Recall the Apache origin story of the horse, and how the horse had been made specifically for them. Spanish squatters would be allowed to raise horses, to use them, and to pasture them on Apache ranges. But it became clear that the Apaches always reserved the right to round up these horses whenever they needed them, to put them to their own uses. And this was a right that they asserted consistently, and after 1732, they believed, with Spanish consent. In 1736, they rounded up 40 horses from Mission Espada, and there was no retaliation. In September 1737, La Capitana led the roundup of 100 horses from a ranch southeast of town. And again, nothing. 
In December of 1737, they returned and collected 300 horses, once again without apparent objection from the Spanish. But after that December 1737 roundup, the San Antonio Presidio commander struck back. On December 11th, he surprised Cabellos Colorado, La Capitana, and 14 other Apaches, capturing them all without much of a fight. Which also goes to show how confident Cabellos Colorados and La Capitana and the rest were in their position. They must have believed they had done nothing wrong. And sure, if the Presidio commander wanted to go back to San Antonio and talk, they'd go with him. For an Apache, every talk was a chance to make an alliance. But this Presidio commander was different, and at some level, even Cabellos Colorado and La Capitana should have known this, because they had known of this Presidio commander their whole lives. Left behind in 1693 when the Spanish had abandoned East Texas, this Presidio commander, named José de Urrutia, had gone native. He had integrated himself amongst the Caduan-speaking Tejas and risen up to lead entire campaigns against the Apaches. Even after he returned to Spanish society in the late 1690s, he had spent the entirety of his career posted to the Texas frontier and found himself opposite the Apache Empire at every turn. Urrutia and his later Menchaca descendants would turn out to be the Apache's counterparts with Spanish Texas, sometimes friend and sometimes foe, for the next 200 years. Which didn't mean that communication between Urrutia and the Texas Apaches was clear or even consistent. It was, more often than not, reduced to the universal language of violence, as imprecise as that was. When an Apache peace emissary came to visit Urrutia to request the release of Cabellos Colorados and La Capitana and the other 14 prisoners in exchange for an equal number of horses, Urrutia turned her away with an offensive counteroffer. He would release Cabellos Colorados, La Capitana, and the others if the Apaches returned all of their stolen animals. Aside from the insulting implication that the Apaches' animals had been stolen from anybody, it was the kind of impossible condition that somebody places on a negotiation when they want it to fail. That seems to be how the Apaches took it anyway, because they broke off negotiations and responded again with a show of force. The next week, still in December 1737, 1,000 Apache warriors surrounded San Antonio. Commander Urrutia had maybe three dozen men total under his command, 150 if he mustered the militia. The Apache whirlwind could have swallowed him whole in a single afternoon. But still, Urrutia didn't flinch. And the Apaches then dissolved back into the hill country and tried a different strategy. They resumed normal trade, and they ceased any further roundups of livestock, I suppose to show their goodwill. Perversely, however, Urrutia interpreted this as proof of Cabellos Colorados and La Capitana's guilt and as proof that he could never release them. Apache patience ran out in October of 1738, almost a year later, and the Apaches resumed their roundups and attacks. Urrutia took the extreme step of sending Cabellos Colorados, La Capitana, their two-year-old daughter, and the other captives in chains to Mexico City. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say that he sold them. We don't really know. In either case, they were never heard from again. Then, Urrutia began recruiting volunteers to join his presidials for a retaliatory raid on the Apache's hill country heartland in the lean winter months of 1739. His recruiting pitch in this instance was transparent. 
the wealth of the Apaches was theirs for the taking, and the proceeds from the sale of captives too. It was successful, both the recruiting drive and the campaign, at first at least. He got lucky and he hit the Apaches as many of the men were off fighting and ultimately wiping out a Comanche force. But once the Apache men returned from their victory over the Comanches, they caught up with Rutia's force on October 4, 1739, southwest of San Antonio, and resoundingly defeated him, taking, quote, all the horses and provisions and clothes that we had brought, in addition to some gunpowder and musket balls, end quote. The whole cycle of Spanish-Apache violence continued, even after José de Urrutia died and his son, Toribio, took over. In some ways, the Apache response in these years continued to be the same mirroring strategy that Caballos Colorados and La Capitana had pioneered, responding tit-for-tat to Spanish aggression and then trying to let tensions calm in the interim. Unfortunately, they never calmed for long. Every raid and roundup created the justification for the next. And as alluded to previously, a state of constant war was advantageous to Spanish officials. It helped justify larger budgets, and it legitimized the capture of Indian slaves. It's a fair question as to whether there was something uniquely hard to deal with about these Plains Apaches. Maybe they were just unfortunate enough to live next to the Spanish frontier at this moment in history. But I think a third possibility is probably the more likely one. That the Apaches simply refused to accommodate themselves to a Spanish imperial model that only understood native subjugation, not true native alliance. In any case, every attempt by either side to establish trust was betrayed before it could yield any benefits. For example, in 1741, an Apache band informed Presidio Commander Torribio de Urrutia of their plans to establish a settlement up on the Guadalupe River. As in, hey, this is how much I trust you that I'm going to tell you straight up where all my people and property are going to be. And Urrutia promptly repaid the trust by attacking the new settlement within the year and selling the captives into slavery. These Apaches then went on a rampage throughout northern Coahuila, eventually defeating a force of 200 Spanish soldiers in the field, killing half of them, wounding the Spanish governor of Coahuila, and taking most of their horses and equipment. The next year, they attacked Santa Rosa, known in modern times as Musquis Coahuila, and a year later, they were campaigning as far south as Saltillo and Monterrey. Father Benito Fernández de Santana had been watching this for a decade from his post as president of the Texas Missions at San Antonio's Mission Concepcion. He was genuinely sympathetic to the Apaches and had started to develop channels of communication with them through the numerous Apaches who lived inside the mission communities of San Antonio. But also, at a practical level, he saw how mistrust begat mistrust and how violence created its own justification. And what was particularly obvious to him was the role that slaving continued to play in undermining relations with the proud and powerful Apaches. In his ongoing conversations with Presidio Commander Urrutia, he noted the precedent of El Paso, where slaving by military commanders had eventually been eliminated, and sure enough, the attacks by the Apaches had stopped. In April 1745, Presidio Commander Torribio de Urrutia launched a particularly devastating slave raid deep into the Apache homeland up on the San Saba River. Amongst the captives that Urrutia brought back to San Antonio, Father Fernandez recognized the seven-year-old daughter of the Apache's most powerful captain, the man who had risen up in the aftermath of Cabellos Colorados and La Capitana's kidnapping, a man more inclined to peace than his predecessors 
but also quite capable as a leader in war as well. This captain may have been the man named Boca Comida that we'll see more of later, or he might have been another. In any event, Father Fernandez hoped that through this seven-year-old girl, he would be able to pass a message of peace to the great captain. The Apaches, however, weren't in a mood to hear peace proposals. They sent commissioners to San Antonio, four women this time, to tell the Presidio commander and all the people of the town that a state of war now existed between their two peoples. Weeks of attacks followed through the early summer of 1745, killing nine San Antonians in separate incidents. Then, on June 30th, 1745, a local shepherd boy stumbled upon a force of 350 Apache rangers gathering for an attack on the north side of town, led, presumably, by Captain Boca Comida himself or whoever this great captain was who was intent now on rescuing his kidnapped daughter at any cost. And by the way, this should sound familiar from episode 5 of season 1 of this podcast. The shepherd boy rushed back to town and sounded the alarm just as the first waves of Apache warriors hit the city. A hundred Mission Indians from Mission Valero plus the Presidials and the local militia scrambled to defend San Antonio. Amidst the confusion of battle, however, an Apache living in the missions made his way to the great Apache captain and delivered a message from Father Fernandez. He told the captain that his daughter was still alive, and moreover, that she and the other captives from the spring raid had been treated exceptionally well thanks to the intervention of Father Fernandez. And in fact, this father wanted to offer the Apaches true peace, to be secured by a mission in their own territory, and to promise to stop the slave raids. This Mission Apache's message, and surely the mention of the captain's daughter, quote, moved the captain to shed tears, to give up the campaign, and to order all his men to fall back, end quote. The Spanish were shocked. European settlers, projecting perhaps their own subconscious goals, often assumed that the objective of native attacks was extermination. But it rarely was. These settlers in San Antonio were already immensely valuable as trade partners to the Apaches. And so as quickly as it started, the Apache attack on San Antonio was called off. The Apaches kept the booty that they had captured from the attack, all except for the property belonging to Mission Concepcion, Father Fernandez's mission, which had been left untouched. A very directed response from the great Apache captain to Father Fernandez's message in the highly nuanced language of restraint that once again shows the sophistication of Apache diplomacy. Father Fernandez got the message, and true to his word, he saw to it that the Apache captain's daughter was released. A truce was declared and honored. Eight times over the next six months, Apaches would meet with Father Fernandez to negotiate for the establishment of a Spanish mission to the Apaches. The proposal for the Apache mission and the terms for a permanent peace with the Apaches took a while to wind its way through Spanish colonial bureaucracy, but even during that time, Father Fernandez was able to prevail upon the Presidio commander to show restraint. Even when the commander felt obliged to respond to a small Apache attack in early 1749, Urrutia made a point this time to treat the eight women and children he captured conspicuously well, and to find ways to let the Apaches know he was doing so. A larger raid that he organized in April resulted in the capture of 170 or so Apache captives but this seems to have been only a deliberate maneuver to bring about a final peace settlement, as Urrutia released most of the women and children immediately, and once again 
Father Fernandez was able to ensure the good treatment of the remaining captives and to ensure that all of the Apaches back in their hill country heartland knew about it. Quote, All of this was done to the great wonder of the Apaches, for they had never seen such humanity among the Spaniards. End quote. San Antonio Mission Indians confirmed to Father Fernandez that his strategy was working and that the Apaches were starting to trust Spanish motives and truly pushing now within their own councils for peace. Even mission Indians from rival tribes told Father Fernandez, quote, We always thought that the Apaches would never be our friends, nor come to be Christians. But today we know that their friendship with us comes from the heart. They speak the truth, that they desire a mission, and the priests can believe them, end quote. In April of 1749, Urrutia and Fernandez released two Apache women and one man to, quote, present to their chiefs and offer to return all the prisoners that had been taken, combined with a peace offer to live together and move forward as brothers, end quote. Unlike every other time in the past, and unlike specifically the experience of the 1720s, this time the Spanish in San Antonio were offering to release their captives before negotiating the terms of the final peace, trusting that the great peoples could figure out the details. And so all throughout May and August, Apaches, skeptically at first, began to trickle in from the north to collect their loved ones, who were released to them unconditionally. In the meantime, the peoples engaged in other trust-building activities, such as sharing intelligence with each other. The local Apaches led on to the Spanish that their Mescalero Apache cousins were preparing a raid out in West Texas. The Spanish, in turn, led on to the Apaches that the East Texas Catawans were planning a raid into the hill country. On August 15, 1749, smoke signals in the hills northwest of San Antonio announced the arrival of the leading Apache captains and all their people to a great and final celebration of peace. This time, Spanish soldiers, settlers, and missionaries welcomed them into San Antonio. Three days of carneadas ensued, barbecues we call them, and religious ceremonies as well, both masses and mitotes. On the fourth day, and recall again how sacred the number four was to the Apaches. The Apaches lined up on one side of the plaza and the Spaniards on the other, on either side of a large trench that had been dug between them. According to a later account, in the trench were buried a lance, six arrows, a live horse, and, most famously, a hatchet. Four Apache captains and Urrutia, whom the Apaches by then had, quote, come to fear and love at the same time, end quote, all of them danced around the hole together, three times. They shouted three, Viva el Reyes, and they echoed them with an uncounted, although I bet the number was four, Apache shouts too. Maybe one of these dancing captains was the Capitan Grande of all the Plains Apaches. Or maybe it was Boca Comida. Or maybe Boca Comida was the Capitan Grande. It's always hard to know. They're always a little bit off screen, kind of like the great Capitanas. But in any case, mass marriages between Apaches and Mission Indians followed as well a small glimpse into the historical record of one of the Apaches' most effective alliance-making strategies at work. The Apaches, via this ceremony, were in effect adopting San Antonio, marrying the town into their kinship networks, something which even Spanish administrators now understood. After the 1749 peace treaty, San Antonio became the, quote, center of the Apache, end quote, according to a Texas governor. They had made it, quote, their establishment, end quote. Three clauses of the great 1749 Spanish-Apache peace demonstrate the extent to which it was, however, really an Apache victory. 
First, the Spanish began paying annual rent to these Apaches. Over 2,600 fanegas of corn and 133 head of cattle over the next seven years. In addition to annual payments of textiles, hats, horses, bits, tobacco, knives, and other metal implements. Spanish bureaucrats called these gifts to assuage their egos, but we typically call large recurring payments to a landlord rent, so that's what I'll call them. In any event, it was an enormous windfall for the Apaches and showed the extent to which the Spanish acknowledged Apache dominance in Texas. The second major term of the treaty was that the Apaches agreed to peace with their Caduan-speaking Tejas rivals in East Texas, who for the first time also gave them access to a small number of French firearms. Nothing could have been more valuable to the Plains Apaches, and it was an astute and important concession on the part of the Spanish administrators in San Antonio, who were forbidden by official policy from selling Apaches' guns. But by finding this back door, they helped the Plains Apaches feel truly secure in their homeland. And third, after four years of negotiations, the Apaches would finally, really this time, Father Fernandez swore, get a mission. It was the kind of thing that would, in theory, finally protect them against slavers, turbocharge their economy with Spanish trade goods, and ensure a line of mutual defense against the encroaching Norteño hordes. Because even the Spanish were growing unsettled by the Comanches by this point in time. In 1747, French traders had crossed the plains from Missouri to Taos under Comanche escort. This in itself was proof of the Apache loss of control of the northern plains, but it was also cause for alarm for Spanish administrators, who were always nervous to close off their domains to cheaper foreign trade goods. And most alarming of all to the Spanish was how well-armed the Comanche escorts were. These peoples who a generation before had never fired a gun were now better armed than the Spanish presidials that intercepted them. Fearful of this growing Comanche power, the Spanish formally cut off trade with the Comanches, which of course only pushed them into closer alliance with the French-supplied Catawans. Still, it was a sign of how the fate of Spanish Texas would, for the next generation, be tied to Texas Apaches. And so too would the fate of these Apaches become tied to Spanish Texas. It's always important to remember that the Apaches weren't a nation-state, nor were they even a people in the way that Western ethnologists like to classify folks. They were just people, common descendants of Inde buffalo hunters who had been carried by the whirlwind down the Great Plains until it deposited them on the backs of the horse and granted them dominion over the trade of the Texas Plains. But now, a subset of these people would come to define themselves even more specifically by their decision to live in the Texas Hill Country and the Trans-Pecos and South Texas and Northern Coahuila, and to live there symbiotically with the Spanish coming up from the South. These Apaches in particular would come to be known by the Spanish, if not also in their own language, as Lipan Apaches. The word Lipan appears for the first time in Spanish records around this time. There's a few theories as to its origins, but the most widely accepted seems to be that Lepainde meant the light gray people. As to what that means, there's some references in the historical record to hill country Lipanes coating themselves, or at least their hair, with the white caliche dust of the Edwards Plateau, which would be an adaptation from an earlier practice of coating their hair with red ochre, which may have been the source of Cabellos Colorado's name. It would be a fitting transition at this juncture that the captains after Cabellos Colorado's 
entrenched now on the Edwards Plateau, would have adopted their own locally sourced autochthonous form of body embellishment. But I also like the idea that the gray people refers to the color between white and black. On the one hand, white and black represent the north and the east respectively in Apache cosmology, and recall that the Lipanes' origin story said that they had landed after the first Apache migratory cycle in the northeast. Gray is also the color between night and dark, representing the tension between the changing woman moon and the killer of enemies' sun. In any event, it just feels like gray is the perfect color for the ultimate alliance makers, absorbers, and adapters. The, quote, people of the in-between, end quote, as Bernard Barcena, chairman of the modern Lipan tribe of Texas, calls his people. In the way that their ancestors had absorbed and merged their way down the plains for the last thousand years, these Apaches that we'll know as Lipanes going forward would absorb and marry and merge their way into the Spanish settler societies that were coming to populate Texas and Coahuila. But Captain Boca Comida wouldn't be there to lead them. He and several others contracted smallpox soon after the great treaty celebration in San Antonio, perhaps from some of the clothing that the Spanish had gifted to them. There's no indication of any ill intent on the part of the Spanish in this instance, but it was symbolic somehow of how circumstances always seem to conspire against a lasting Spanish-Lipan alliance. And indeed, it would be the alliance's greatest victory ever that would soon tear it apart on the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown Dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margo Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina Gonzalez Davila, Nancy McGowan Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas in the Texas Observer article by Dylan Bedour. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com.